This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing good? We're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, so I invite you to turn there. That's John chapter 11. We're going to be going through all, well, not all of John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. So it's a huge chunk of Scripture, but it's going to be very important for us to see a few things as we walk through. Just so you're aware, we're going to have two points, and they're going to kind of come towards the end. So if you're keeping score, you can, uh, you can be on the lookout for those uh, a little bit later in the message. So John chapter 11, upstairs in, in student ministry, we've been recently walking through the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John. So there's seven of these statements. And what we wanted to, our students really to see is that we can't confuse, as, as believers, we can't confuse knowing things about Jesus with truly knowing Jesus. Does that make sense? We can know a lot about someone without truly knowing them. To truly know them means to know their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their fears. That's what it means to truly know someone. And we wanted our students to truly know Jesus, and so we walk through these statements. Why is that important, though? Why is it important that we truly know Jesus on a very foundational and relational level? Because when we know Jesus... Our confidence in what he's done grows. Our confidence in what he's done grows when we truly see Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what happens is, when we see Jesus face to face, unveiled face, as Paul says, when when we see Jesus in that way, we are then transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's a marathon. It's not a race. In our society, we love the, the microwave culture. We want it now, and we want it fast. I think of Little Caesar's Hot and Ready Pizzas. That's, that's how we live our life nowadays. But it is a marathon. It's a painstaking process, being, being molded and shaped into better image bearers. But that's what Jesus does. That's what God does, and that's what the Spirit does in us. And so, as we jump in this morning, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll mow right through John chapter 11. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we're thankful for this time in your Word. God, we pray that your Spirit would penetrate our hearts. God, that you would step on our toes, that you would confront us, confront me, Father God, that you would lead us to repentance, that you would humble us, that we would see Christ's humility, and as people who are the called out ones, that we would emulate that humility. And so, Father God, bless this time as we dive in. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we jump in this morning, I want to ask, think of a situation in your life where you have to have radical trust in someone else. A situation in your life where you have to have radical trust in someone else. I can think of a few. I've been on a quest of sorts for the perfect haircut. Okay, I love getting haircuts. They're they're fun to me. 
when people just play with your hair. I mean, you have to pay them at the end, but that's okay. But they, they play with your hair, right? But it takes radical trust to sit down in front of somebody with, a, with, some, uh, with some trimmers. Because if they get the wrong guard, if the guard falls off, they're going to mow a racing stripe right down the middle of your head. And it's not going to be a good thing. And you pretty much just have to live with it for a couple of weeks until it grows back. So that's a situation where I, I think of that I have to have radical trust in someone else. You don't know if they're going to have a bad day, right? Another situation that I think of is skydiving. Anybody ever skydived before or dove? Skydove? Skydived? A couple of people, you're crazy. That's okay. To each his own. You will never, ever, ever find me skydiving. Okay, I might, I'm not going to say I'll never jump out of a plane because you never know what kind of situations you get yourself in, especially as a student pastor, but I will never, ever skydive. My sister did it, enjoyed it, but there's never, there's never going to be any way you're going to get me to strap myself to another human being, place my life in that person's hands, because there again, you don't know what they're going through. That's a situation where you have to have radical trust that that person is going to pull that ripcord when it's time to pull that ripcord, and that that person packed the parachute right. Okay, I can't even pack a lunch, much less a parachute. And so that's not going to be a good situation. I will never do that. Another situation that I think of, and this is a little bit more serious, uh, surgery. You think of laying down on the operating table, and you think of going under the knife, especially for a serious surgery, as some of you guys have had, whether it's a heart surgery or a, or a brain surgery, something like that. That's a situation that takes radical trust in the education of that doctor and the experience of that surgeon. Today, in John chapter 11, we're going to see a passage where, where we're going to have to have radical trust in Jesus. And we're going to see a passage where the people in this passage have to, had to have radical trust in Jesus. So let's dive in. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And I'm going to just kind of set this up real quick for you guys. In John chapter 11, we find Lazarus fighting some sort of illness. We don't really know what kind of illness it is, but we know that it's serious. Lazarus is, is terminal. And what we also have to know is that with Lazarus and his sisters, Jesus has an extremely, extremely close relationship with this family. If you remember, uh, it, it's, it's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Mary in a chapter later, in John chapter 12, is the one who, who pours the perfume out on Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her hair. So there's this mutual respect and love between this family and Jesus. They've spent a lot of time around each other, and they love each other. And at this point in the story, Jesus and his disciples had been doing ministry in and around Jerusalem Lazarus and Mary and Martha are from Bethany. Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. But they ran into some issues, some persecution at the hands of the Jews. They were seeking to, to stone them. And so Jesus and his disciples left and fled the area. And Mary and Martha, seeing the condition of their brother, send a messenger to Jesus to ask Jesus to come quickly because Lazarus is sick. And in verse 6, we're going to pick up and see Jesus' response to this situation. Verse 6. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's logical, right? I mean, which one of us, upon hearing of the terminal condition of one of our, our close friends or loved ones, would stay put? That's crazy. We wouldn't. We'd be on the next flight, we'd jump in the car, and we'd drive straight to where our friend was to spend uh, what looks to be the last hours with that person. 
But Jesus says, you know what, guys? We're going we're to stay put for a couple more hours. We're just going to sit tight. We're going to hang out here for a few more days. Then, verse 7, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going again. So there's two people that are, that are two groups of people, really, that are trying to have trust in Jesus at this point. You've got the disciples, and then you've got uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're asking him, why are we going to go there? They were trying to throw rocks at us, big rocks, and they were trying to kill us. Not just hurt us, not just protest, but they're trying to kill. Why are we going? Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And so I love this picture that this passage paints. We almost see Jesus as kind of uh, telling them in just, just a really nonchalant way, yeah, Lazarus is asleep. Because they didn't pick up that the situation was urgent. But Jesus was really talking about Lazarus' death. And so Jesus had to break it down for him in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. We want to hang on to that. We're going to see that a little bit later. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days is is significant there. We're going to see that four-day mark a little bit later in the passage as well, so hang on to that one. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So this was kind of like a visitation of sorts. And, and back in those times, families would congregate and friends would congregate for days at a time, whereas now we kind of do the visitation and then you have the funeral and, and maybe there's some family gatherings, but this was a, uh, an event. And they're coming together to console the family concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Mary's good at sitting. If you remember a couple of chapters earlier in John, she was the lady who sat at Jesus' feet, and then Martha complained that she wasn't up serving the guests while Mary was sitting there listening to Jesus and and just entranced and and just raptured and taken by Jesus. Uh, Martha complains, and, and Mary stays seated, and she gets commended by Jesus. So Mary remains at the house. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here we see Martha calling Jesus out. Jesus, if you would have been here, this situation wouldn't have happened. So often we do that in our lives, do we not? God, if you would have done something, if you would have moved in this situation, we wouldn't be where we're at now. And I know this this passage is going to hit home to a lot of you because a lot of you have dealt with the loss of loved ones. A lot of you have dealt with questions that go unanswered. A lot of you have dealt with suffering and issues in life. And you're, you're screaming out and you're crying out to God, where are you? Why am I going through this? We're going to find comfort in the very words of Jesus in just a moment. But Martha is broken, she's upset, and she's confused. And in verse 22, she realizes her, her stupidity. And she offers Jesus just kind of some religious platitudes. You guys know what Christianese is? Christianese? That's what, that's what Martha does here, I, I think. It, it's, it's, it's really funny. Uh, 
Christianese, you, you think of those things that you say to people like when they're, when they're bringing their suffering to you and, and, you know, you really care, but it's really not that big of a deal. And you're like, yeah, I'll pray for you. That's Christianese. Or uh, another example of Christianese, if it's the Lord's will or God has a plan. There's those things that we say when we really don't know what to say. And so we just kind of fill the space. And in verse 22, Martha offers Jesus some Christianese. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus, you should have been there, but I know whatever you ask from God, God's going to do it for you. I know that. Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha is thinking, okay, Lazarus is going to raise again, but it's going to be someday far off into the future. When Jesus comes back, my brother will rise again. It's out there. But Jesus says to her, no, 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 verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me... Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the question, do you, Martha, believe this? And she said to him emphatically, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary rose quickly and went to him. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, this is going to be common. You're going to recognize this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here we go again, right? But we see Jesus respond in in a different way. And it's awesome. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved. I want to hit the pause button there. I want to talk about that phrase because we see it a couple of times in this passage. I don't want us to miss this. Scholars say that that deeply moved is is a terribly kind of deficient translation doesn't really translate well from from Greek to English. English language doesn't really have a word for this. What this this phrase really should mean is is to snort with anger, much like a bull getting ready to charge. That's the phrase here. John Calvin says that Jesus is preparing to enter a ring like a wrestler preparing for the contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome, now stands before his eyes. I want us to see what's happening here. Jesus is entering the ring with mankind's greatest enemy, death and separation from God. He's tapping in and he's, he's entering the ring. And this is when, if you're, if you're writing a soundtrack to the book of John, maybe you hear the Rocky theme playing in the background. Jesus is, is about to go toe-to-toe with death. And what else is interesting? We're going to see in verse 47 that the raising of Lazarus is going to trigger the events that would lead to Jesus' death. This is big. This fight with death is going to start in chapter 11 with, with Jesus snorting with anger at death, with him yelling in the face 
of death. But it's going to end eight chapters later in the crucifixion. Jesus here is about to go full body contact with death. He's going to the cross where he absorbed the curse of death that we deserved. And Jesus is about to snap death's, snap death's neck. And I never really suggest interrupting a funeral. That's never really a good idea. But the only way that Jesus could interrupt the funeral of, of Lazarus was to, to begin essentially his own funeral. He's going to wrestle with death so that Lazarus and everyone else, all of human, humankind, mankind, can live. And as a dude, I really love this picture of Jesus kind of snorting into the face of death and, and, and going toe-to-toe to death. Because a lot of times we see the, the, the airbrushed Jesus, right? Those pictures of Jesus and he's got the blonde flowing locks and he's like looking off into the middle distance with rosy cheeks. Right? That, pictures of Jesus always make me uncomfortable. We don't know what he looked like. But we oftentimes see that, that feminine picture of, of Jesus. As a man, I, I just love this picture. He's shouting at the greatest enemy ever to face those that he loved. And he's going to destroy it, even though death temporarily takes his life. And so Jesus emphatically is going to say to us, I'm not going anywhere. I came to earth to rescue you. I'm not going to leave you. A good shepherd will never leave his sheep. Jesus was deeply moved. The story continues in verse 34. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, famously the, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus did what? He wept. Jesus wept. Such a short, impactful verse. And by the way, if you want to start, maybe you've been intending to, to begin memorizing Scripture. Maybe that's something you want to kind of fold into your, your, your spiritual disciplines. That's a good place to start. You probably already have it memorized. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. You can hang that one on, on, your, on your hat rack. And you're good to go. But I want us to see really quickly three reasons why Jesus wept. He wept because of his compassion for suffering. Friends, I want us to know this morning that if you're suffering, if you're going through the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the deterioration of a relationship, if you're suffering with depression or some sort of long-term illness, Jesus understands. Jesus suffered first. He may not deliver you from it, but he's certainly going to provide you a way through it. And he's going to teach you. And then we we get to Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So for the believer, good may not happen here in this life, but eventually we will spend eternity with Jesus. And that alone is worth it. Jesus wept because of his compassion for suffering. Jesus wept, second thing, for the calamity of sin. Jesus knows that despite our best efforts, we will never be able to perfectly follow his commands. We will never be able to, to prop our own righteousness up 
before him. Never. And that is troubling for him, and he weeps for that. And the last thing, Jesus wept because of the cost of redemption. The cost of redemption. At this point, Jesus knows full well where the story is going to end. And we said just a few minutes ago that, that the only way that he could interrupt Lazarus' funeral is to begin his own. In eight chapters, we're going to see Jesus go to the cross. And it's going to cost him greatly. But he's okay with it. Jesus wept. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In other words, Jesus, if you can open the eyes of the blind, if you can heal the lame, if the deaf can hear and the blind can see, then certainly, certainly you could prevent this from happening. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, and if you remember earlier, she said she believed, okay? Said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. In other words, Martha's like, Jesus, don't open that tomb. It's going to smell like a bucket of rotten cheese. Do not do it. But she was doubting. After she said she believed, Lazarus had been in there for four days. This is why that, that four days is significant. It was Jewish custom at the time for, for somebody to, to allow the body to lay for four days because it was the belief that the spirit of the body would hover over the dead body for three days just to make sure that death was indeed a reality and then the spirit would go on. And so other words, what, what this passage and what John's trying to communicate to us is that Lazarus is D-E-D, dead. I mean, he's dead. Dead as a doornail. I don't even know what a doornail is. But he's, Lazarus is dead, okay? And that's what the passage is, is communicating to us. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Right here, Jesus is asking for radical trust and radical belief. And, it, and it's hard for us to comprehend because he walked this earth 2,000 years ago. It's so hard because we can't see, but we can trust him because we have ample evidence that Jesus backed it up in word and deed. So look at verse 43. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In one statement, Jesus shows his power over death and sets the stage for the greatest event in human history, the cross. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This morning, I want you guys to know that Jesus steps into our world to untangle our past and give us immediate hope. Let me say that again. Jesus steps into our world to untangle our past and give us immediate hope. And I want to give us two things that Jesus will do if we trust him. Two things. The first thing is this. Jesus will give our lives purpose. Jesus will give our lives purpose. 
Mark Twain has a famous quote. He said this, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. That's a, that's a nice quote. If I could edit it, though, again, Mark Twain's not a, a scriptural author, so I, I think I can take some liberties with this one. If I could edit this, I would say it this way. The two most important days in your life are the day you were reborn and the day you find out why. If you're someone this morning who, who's still trying to figure out what to do with this person, Jesus, if you're struggling with what to do with Jesus, I want to boldly say to you this morning, you don't know who you are until you know who Jesus is. Apart from Christ, we, we wander aimlessly. What is the point of life? Why do we love? Why do we accumulate stuff? Why do we show grace to others and kindness to others? How do we know what's right and wrong? There's no point apart from Christ. But with Christ, the world starts making sense. We can make sense of ourselves when we understand who Jesus is. So if you're on the fence, I invite you this morning to to move off of the fence. Because here's the reality. You guys, we're Lazarus. We're Lazarus. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and when we trust Christ, we, we become partakers in his resurrection. We're evidence of his work to those around us, and our purpose in this life is to know him and make him known. Our purpose is to put on display the character of God, and we're built in such a way, hear me on this, we're built in such a way that there's nothing in this world that brings us greater joy than serving the Lord. Nothing. So as followers of Christ, we display his glory. We reflect his image to others. So this time, we can think of practical ways that we can serve. We can love those around us. We can certainly pray for those. We can vocalize the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask many of you, what's the most important thing that ever happened to you? You would say, trusting Christ for salvation. How often do you talk about it? When you get a new car, you're certainly going to talk about that. How often are you going to talk about salvation? Other practical ways. We can give of our time. We can give of our money. Those things are are certainly important. But we can meet the needs of those who feel marginalized, regardless of of what side of the political spectrum we, we are on. We can love and we can serve because Christ came to love and serve us first. So question for all of you. Where would you be if Christ had not saved you? I submit this morning that we would be dead like Lazarus. And apart from Christ, we face the weight of imperfection. We face the prospects of living forever separated from God. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be, friends. In Christ, you were created with a purpose and for a purpose. Let's seize that. The second thing. So the first thing, he gives our lives purpose. The second thing, he gives us abundant life. He gives us abundant life. Friends, this morning, I want you to understand that Jesus abandoned his life to give you abundant life. He abandoned his life to give you abundant life. John 10.10 says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Abundant life. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, 
this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who what? Who love him. In Christ, we get protection and plenty. We get safety and deep satisfaction. Abundant life is is not about accumulating stuff. It's not about building kingdoms for ourselves on this earth. It's about having peace. It's about having joy, and it's about having God. That's what abundant life is. And what he's asking us to do this morning, what he's asking you to do, is just simply trust him. Trust that he's good, and believe that he's weaving a story for his glory and for your good. That's what Jesus is doing. When I, as a man, stand here and I think of what Jesus did, I understand that I'm someone who's miraculously survived death. Each breath that I take is a gift. Every step is fresh. Colors are more vibrant. And life is more lively in Christ. Now certainly non-believers can enjoy the good things that this earth provides, that God provides. God created creation and he said what? It was good. Now sin has distorted that. But God has given us good gifts to enjoy. And certainly non-believers can enjoy those things. But Christians, when we enjoy those things. There's a deeper meaning, a sustaining joy that backs up all of God's good gifts. We're called to enjoy them. And so regardless of our external circumstances, joy and satisfaction are ours in Christ. So this morning, what I want us all to see is that Jesus is alone the solution to the problem of death. He is the resurrection and the life. And that resurrection and life is not some future event that's out there. It can be yours right here, right now. It's available to everyone right here and right now. So if you haven't trusted Christ and you feel the Spirit working and and you feel like today is the day, I'm going to be down front. I invite you to come chat. If you've been attending maybe First Baptist for a while and and you want to be a part of this body of believers and you want want to to come forward and and join, welcome you to do that as well. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll close out. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your son Jesus. God, we're thankful that you made him knowable to us. We're thankful, that God, that, that we can stand here and, and, and say that we can truly have a relationship with you, that we can pray to you, that you hear us, and we can do so because Jesus made a way. And God, we know that 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 life, that abundant life is not something that that happens when we meet you face to face. But we can experience it here and now. Father God, it's our desire this morning that all would taste and see and know, God, that you are good and that you are for us. So God, no matter what we face in this life, we can boldly march through. God, because we know your spirit is at work. We know that you are going to work things out for your glory and for our good. And we can trust in Jesus. It's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus 
equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.